Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rish Desai. Today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by David Kopp, former CEO at Healthline Media. Prior to his time at Healthline, David led North American ad product marketing for Yahoo, as well as marketing for a division at Disney, and held leadership roles in several internet advertising and technology startups. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Desai. <laughs> so you can definitely call me Rishi. And, and uh, David, before we, we got started, you were talking about uh, your own kind of avid love of Peloton and of training. Uh, I'd love to understand both that and as well as kind of how it ties into your love of health and healthcare more broadly. Sure. There are probably a few different connections there. You know, biking in general is super therapeutic for me on two levels. I think uh, one is sort of the obvious, you, you know, it's a good workout. It's it's kind of a lifetime uh, workout sport, right? Low impact, but, you know, really great for cardio. And I am at an age where, you know, I can either sort of watch my diet and exercise aggressively or completely watch my diet and exercise not so aggressively. And so I, I prefer to have a broad diet and be able to, you know, eat, uh, eat a little more aggressively. So that means I, I spend a lot of time on the bike, but the, the other thing that I really realized about biking is that, um, and th there's actually good neuroscience behind this is that I do my best thinking on the bike. And, uh, the neuroscience behind it is that, you know, when your brain is, is slightly distracted by a kind of somewhat routine activity, it is able to process much more deeply. And so I know that like when I'm, uh, you know, noodling on a particularly thorny complex problem, getting on the bike for an hour, an hour and a half and, you know, heading off alone generally is the most productive thing I can do. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And, it, and it's kind of interesting whenever we, we do these kind of things, I think it also helps to, to recalibrate and kind of refocus and, and, and bring us back to kind of the core of who we are and our, our health on an individual basis. Um, tying that into, I think, more broadly, you know, your profession has led through a very interesting route through health and healthcare. Do you mind just talking a little bit about your role as the CEO or the former CEO of Health and Media and, and your interest both in physical health, but, but also kind of more broadly diet and nutrition? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, you know, it's interesting too, because I did not join Healthline because I was super passionate about health. I joined it because I thought it was, it was going to be a good business. It turned out that, you know, we had a lot of work to do to turn it into a good business. But uh, one of the things that happened after it became a, a good business is we started to then turn it into a much better business and have a lot of success. And I remember when there were 10 million people who visited us in a month, and we started having conversations about how critical what we were doing was, because we really believed that the content that we were producing was better content. And our whole strategy was around, like, let's create the best possible content out there. And, uh, you know, the best content ultimately is going to win. And that's how we'll build a great business. We, we came to the conclusion that what we were doing actually was really good for the world, which seems in retrospect a little obvious. Um, but, you know, I had come out of digital media, I worked in, I mean, I've worked in digital media for 25 years, and I'd spent 15 of it doing things that weren't bad for the world. But, but I, I just didn't have that dimension 
to my experience. And, and I think at that point, which was maybe three or four years into the helpline experience, I started to really focus on it. And we became actually very focused on the mission and the vision of building a stronger, healthier world. And, you know, ultimately by the time I left, we were reaching, you know, 300, 350 million people globally um, and really having quite an impact, which kind of brings to the, the last part is that uh, one of the things is you get deeper and deeper uh, in healthcare is you realize most of most of what people think of as healthcare is actually sick care. It's, it, it's actually treating chronic conditions and, and things that uh, are probably, not, not all of them are avoidable, but a lot of them are avoidable by good healthy habits uh, and diet is probably the biggest of those. Uh, and so just because I was constantly in that world, I became much more focused on diet and nutrition and, and things like functional medicine and how you kind of integrate diet into your life in a way that, uh, that preserves health. One of the things that I've always struggled with and kind of been frustrated by is that as a pediatrician, one would think that I would be equipped to give advice on things like nutrition and exercise and mindfulness and all those kinds of things that, that parents and kids might be, might be interested in, probably should be interested in. Uh, and yet I'm not, right? I'm not at all able to do that. I'm just curious, at Healthline, did you come across this like with health care professionals feeling ill-equipped to counsel on these topics? And, and what did you guys do about it? Yeah, well, and it's interesting because I think that there are kind of three buckets. Um, there are the doctors who, who, like you, realize, you know, people are asking me a lot about nutrition and I'm ill-equipped to answer it. Th then there are the people who answer it anyway <laughs> um, um, and kind of think of themselves as experts. And then I think, you know, that there's a group that actually uh, recognizes that, hey, look, this is something I either need to get educated or I need to build kind of a referral relationship with nutritionists or dietitians. But it is really interesting. There, there are huge structural impediments to it actually working properly, right? Like you highlighted the first, which is like med schools in general do not require much knowledge of nutrition or diet as part of your, part of your fundamental training. But then you have the whole financial impediment that, you know, the, the whole insurance system in the U.S. and and in general, fee-for-service kind of approach does not uh, really, diet and nutrition tends to be things that you really have to spend a lot of time to understand the specific situation of a user, likes and dislikes. And our whole system is about, you know, you've got 11 minutes or maybe, <laughs> maybe nowadays it's, it's nine to spend with a patient. It's not enough to actually get into those kinds of issues. And then, you know, there's a third kind of structural impediment, which is probably, it, it's part of what you're highlighting too, which is that we have such specialization, but we have no medical specialization in diet and nutrition. You, you have nutritionists who are kind of seen as affiliated, but not really part of the professional organization. So when you go and you look at a hospital system, the, the leading ones are now starting to employ dietitians and nutritionists, certainly on staff, but there are a lot that actually just consider that outside the realm of medicine. Um, and that again, probably has something to do with the other structural impediments, but all of that, you know, we encountered a lot of, and we realized consumers are actually having to solve that problem on their own, um, which is why we ended up about a quarter of our total traffic at a health line was, was to diet nutrition related content. And you said earlier, like this dichotomy between sick care and well care, and at least as a clinician, my my interaction with a nutritionist or dietitian was almost always in the context of someone in the ICU or someone that was getting parental nutrition, 
you know, it was in that sort of intensive care setting or someone with cystic fibrosis that might have uh, a need for supplements. It was almost never in the realm of like, let's say, a child who is trying to um, eat healthier. Right. Or, or anything that feels vaguely mainstream. It was always in that kind of very corner case scenario um, that, that that interaction happened. And so I didn't learn yeah. any of the general nutrition principles. I learned only how to set up a parental nutrition bag so that someone can get fed through an IV line. That was this, the kind of nutrition I was learning. I mean, th this is another kind of structural impediment that I think most of medicine today addresses problems after they've happened as opposed to before, right? It, it's like you're giving all these examples of like, I'm in this acute situation where Yes, nutrition is important in that acute situation, but it's actually, it's not going to help that patient avoid being back in that situation. I mean, if, if their insurance plan would only cover your prescription for a, you should be on a plant-based diet, yeah. that would be great. But that also doesn't exist structurally. Nope. Uh, although again, some, some leading health systems are starting to do that with food pantries and things like that, where they're finding just phenomenal results, even replacing only half of food intake with something that's just healthier, organic, plant-based, addressing some of these, you know, fundamental sources of inflammation and in, in, uh, in people's diet. That, that phrase plant-based is interesting as well, because it, it, it truly wasn't, I think, in the general lexicon a decade ago. You know, a decade ago, the words that we used were vegetarian or vegan and other words like yeah. that. And, um, and each word has a, a feeling around it. And I think plant-based has changed the feeling quite dramatically to feel much more mainstream or okay or normal or any of those kinds of things. Did you see that with queries at Healthline or, or at other kind of junctures in your professional career? Well, it's interesting because I have two vegan daughters. So I have four kids, but I have two vegan daughters. And so our house is largely plant-based at this point. And so th there's been a lot of conversation, but one of the things that I've really looked at after leaving Healthline is the whole plant-based market, because I really do believe that the science is, is very clear. You know, I, whether you are strict plant-based or strict vegan, uh, strict vegetarian, or you just become more plant-based, there's no question that more plants in your life is probably, well, it is better for your health. I, I don't think that's going to change. I think it's going to accelerate. Like what we are as a society going to move there. I think part of the stigma around veganism is that a lot of the motivation for veganism, actually, it's not health related. It's actually kind of a climate ecological thing. And it's seen as being very radical. But from my perspective, what, and I think you totally nailed it, like plant-based is a much more mainstream way to think about this. And I'm a huge fan of progress, not perfection. Like veganism to me is like, I mean, that is fantastic if you can have a perfectly vegan diet. I cannot. I, well, I mean, I suppose I could if my life depended on it, but, you know, I like eggs. Uh, I like cheese. Every once in a while, I also like meat, although I've, I'm starting to realize there are really good alternatives to most of those things. And if I just skew my diet toward a more, uh, a stronger plant basis, it's like I feel better, things seem to work better. And just in general, I think it will lead to, uh, lead to better health. And I think that's the way you know, people are starting to see that term plant-based is kind of in that progress, not perfection sense. I love that phrase, progress, not perfection. And I think 
one cycle ago, there was a whole thought around harm reduction around cigarettes. And I was always of the mindset, like if I can get my patient to go from 20 cigarettes to 19, that to me was as big of a win as going from one to zero. Like, like you've reduced it by a cigarette, right? Right, right. <laughs> but going from one to zero is a dichotomous, I'm a smoker or not smoker. Yeah. Whereas going from 20 to 19 doesn't get celebrated with a different label, right? right. Like you're still a smoker, but 19 versus 20. Yeah. Um, but it's just as big a win, right? Yeah. Like, like it's just as important. And so I, I feel the same way around what you said. Like there are a lot of folks out there that are committed to trying to eat less uh, meat products and, and other other things that we know are not as healthy. Um, and that to me is just as exciting. Yeah. The, the insight you have here is one of the biggest things I took away from my time at Healthline. Like we were in the thick of it with consumers. And when I would spend time with people who are kind of more traditionally healthcare people, it was like we were speaking a different language. And what I started to realize is that you know, human beings are messy. Like we're, we're just messy. We have a lot going on in our lives. And in healthcare, there's a, you know, most of healthcare comes from a, a position of science. There is this dichotomy that kind of leads to people saying, well, this is the right answer as opposed to this is, this is progress. or this is a better answer. And I think when you're firmly rooted in this kind of the messiness of like, we have millions of users and not everything works for everyone. Um, you start to realize that what you're saying, if I can get people from 20 to 19 on whatever that bad habit is, that's great. Um, and I think the other thing that we learned is that a lot of behavior, like when you look at the science of behavior change, in general, small steps, lead to transformation as opposed to large steps. Very few people are able to do anything cold turkey. And there's a whole science behind, like when you take a small step, you actually, the body's reaction to that small successful step is to give you a reward, right? It gives you a psychological feeling. Like there is a feeling that is powered by your endorphins or some other, some other neurotransmitter that makes you feel great. And so you are more likely to then take the next small step. And I think it just reinforces that if you really wanna change things, taking more of that like steady progress, small changes, progress, not perfection, those things are the things that actually I think in our messy human existence are likely to uh, to have a bigger impact. Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more. We're, uh, I think in many ways we're preaching to one another's choirs right now. <laughs> yes, I, exactly. Um, do, you mind, do you mind talking a little bit about the, the COVID pandemic and, and what you've kind of noticed about it with regards to remote work and social distancing, specifically around what we've kind of been touching on, but like the sedentary lifestyle a lot of people have been leading, uh, both adults and children, and, and how we can start to reverse this and maybe find a new normal through kind of these baby steps you're describing. I think actually it has really reinforced my kind of experience of, you know, small changes versus big changes. I mean, in, in many ways, the pandemic was just, it's this massive change where, where kind of everything changes. But I think as people climbed into it or out of it, depending on your point of view, um, like my pandemic story, which was, a you know, uh, not a, not a hard story, but I think it's probably shared by a lot of people, which is, I'm an introvert, so I found myself like, you know, a couple of weeks into it, like, hey, this is great. I don't have a commute. Like, 
I still have all the kind of one-on-one -on -one engagement that I want, albeit through video. It, you know, it seemed great. And then three or four weeks in, I started to just feel this malaise and this kind of sense of exhaustion. And I actually listened to Deepak Chopra. The, the thing that he talked about that I hadn't read before was about nature. But it's all part of a larger construct of what I like to think of as men's. So there's mindfulness, exercise, nature, diet, and sleep. And I paid a lot of attention to mindfulness because I have learned that I function better if I do my daily meditation. Um, and so I kept that up during the pandemic, realizing this is going to be stressful. The exercise thing, I took advantage of the fact that I didn't have a commute and I knew that I need that. Um, so I'd been doing those things, the diet I'd been, you know, fairly careful on the sleep. I probably hadn't been as careful as, as I should be, but the nature thing was missing for me. And so that was a really interesting one to say, okay, I'm going to try to do my mindfulness outside, my meditation outside, or I'm going to take one or two of my phone calls. Instead of doing a video call, I'm going to do a walk around the neighborhood. And it was transformative. Like that malaise disappeared almost like week to week for sure, but almost overnight. And I think that balance of looking at all five of those dimensions is really important. And I would guess coming back into whatever the new normal is of, you know, I, I don't think the commutes will be the same and work will be the same and all those things will be exactly the same, but it will be a radical change and we will have to adjust to it. And I think going back to those five dimensions and saying, okay, how do I create new routines around mindfulness, exercise, nature, diet, and sleep will really help people. Um, and it's great because you can make a small change in any one of those dimensions and it starts to build. You know, it's interesting. I remember hearing someone talking about a group of chickens that were kind of released uh, from being in their chicken coop out into kind of a free space. And they were sort of imagining that the chickens were excited and, and were kind of feeling the ground beneath their, their toes and, and whatnot. And I was thinking to myself, how am I that different from that chicken in the sense that I'm always in my apartment? And then when I go outside, I'm like, oh my God, there's a wind on my face, sunlight, I feel the grass, I sit on the, you know, on the grass and I have a picnic and I feel kind of normal again. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget that we're at our core, we're animals yeah. and animals need certain things beyond just kind of food and water. We need to feel nature. And that's just as important as I think anything else. And I think being deprived in a way by always being on a futon or a bed and yeah. a hardwood floor. I mean, that's not nature. No. And so I think there's something about being outside, like you said, that that is very replenishing and very nourishing the way that a good night's sleep is very nourishing. Um, you know, one of the things that I read was an article in Healthline that talked about the neuroscience behind the malaise that people feel. And it was interesting because it said, you need equilibrium in stimulation. And two things happened in the, at the outset of the pandemic, and for many people, I think, are still happening. Uh, one is this overwhelming stimulation around the news cycle. It's not healthy to sort of have so much of your, your stimulation be on topics that you, you know, you don't have much of a sense of control over them. You just feel like there's all this new information and stimulation that, that is just depressing. 
So that's one thing. And that the advice is you got to limit that. You got to like, you know, X number of minutes a day or create a routine around limiting that stimulation. But the other was far more interesting, which is that your brain needs a certain amount of environmental stimulation. And what happens when you sit in the same spot in front of a screen is you get very little environmental stimulation. And that is the neuroscience behind why getting out into nature, which is just, just radical stimulation, right? It's, it's probably a hundred times more stimulation from the sounds you hear, the colors you see. It's just transformative. And that's why when you get out, even for that half an hour or 10 minutes to like just sit, and feel the grass, it's a relief for many people. I think, you know, it's that, that, that's the neuroscience behind it, which is just fascinating to me. You mentioned you have kids, and I'm curious how this idea of, let's call it natural stimulation or nature stimulation, is probably, I would imagine, even more important in kids as their brain is kind of developing and growing. I have a four-year-old, and he often kind of reminds me to go outside. Um, and it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting uh, issue, like what's happening in these, in these kids' brains and the neurochemistry um, as they're not getting as much maybe stimulation outdoors as, as they maybe uh, had in, in years past. Yeah. I mean, in my case, I have, I have several teenagers, so there's no real influencing uh, on some of those things. But you, but you see... Uh, you see the effects. I mean, I have one child who went through a whole period where there was very little of that. And then as she started to actually figure out for herself that she needed that and it was valuable, you could, you could just see like how much it positively affected, you know, her mood. So it is really interesting to, uh, to see it played out, especially in my little, uh, my little clinical trial of four children. <laughs> right. Exactly. You've got a little lab there, you know, um, We've talked about a lot of different things, and a lot of our audience is represented by kind of young, early career health professionals. Do you mind just offering some parting words of advice? Like, what would you say to them now that you've kind of had this experience of COVID, this longer-term experience at Healthline, um, and all these kind of different data points you're grabbing from what you've read and what you've heard? What would you say to folks that are kind of in training as they're coming out in terms of how to approach either themselves or their careers? So I think that is a great question. And at the risk of a cliched answer, people say this all the time to people early in their career, which is you should follow your passion. Um, I, I don't think I understood what that meant. I was always passionate about business and really interested in the way that, you know, like when you're playing a game, you're just really engaged in the game. But I was lucky that at Healthline, as we started to really have this positive impact on our audience and on our users, I realized I felt purpose in that and I felt a passion around that purpose. And what that gave me was this deep reservoir of resilience. I could do the hard work. You know, most of the things you're going to be proud of require a lot of hard work, a lot of discipline, a lot of focus, a lot of just stick to itiveness. And if you don't have that resilience, which I think almost always comes from some combination of passion and purpose. Um, it's hard to do that. But for me, finding that passion and purpose led to a willingness to do that. And then the reward of just really feeling great when you actually accomplish something that you know took years to accomplish and was hard and you did it 
kind of in the trenches with a team of people who you built right relationships with because they also share the passion. And so I think that it, there's a couple things in there, but it's like making sure that you really have passion and purpose in what you do and enough resilience coming from that to commit to that hard path, doing the quality work as opposed to just looking for a shortcut. Um, I think those are two super important things. I think in the pandemic, we all have have started to understand how important self-care is. And I think the older you get, the more you need that kind of balance around self-care because of kids and aging, just all your challenges become more complex and you need a kind of well-rested, well-tuned mind and body to uh, to take those things on. But I think those would be my my three points, passion, commitment, and uh, and self-care. Awesome. And, and your background with, uh, with that bike is a good, healthy reminder that you're, you're practicing what you preach. I appreciate that. I'm trying. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much, David, for being with us today. That was fantastic. Thank you, Rishi. It was great to meet you. I love the dialogue. And uh, I feel like we're very simpatico in the way we, uh, we think about these things. So progress, not perfection. Let's keep making it better. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's definitely my, my mantra. Uh, listen, I'm Dr. Isha Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>